Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Biblical Studies, where we look at new books about the Bible, from modern-day commentaries and art books to scholarly monographs and reference works. I'm Garrett Brown, the host of the channel. On today's program, I'm talking with Mark Brettler about his new edition of the Jewish Study Bible, published by Oxford University Press, which he co-edited with Adele Berlin. Professor Brettler is the Bernies and Morton Lerner Chair of Judaic Studies at Duke University's Center for Jewish Studies. From 1986 to 2015, he taught Near Eastern and Judaic Studies at Brandeis University, and since 2001 was the Dora Golding Professor of Biblical Studies. His academic research has been wide-ranging. He has explored the use of religious metaphors in the Hebrew Bible, in his book, God is King, Understanding an Israelite Metaphor, the nature of biblical historical texts as literary texts in the creation of history in ancient Israel, and gender in the Bible. He was a co-editor of the Jewish Annotated New Testament and the 2001 and 2010 editions of the new Oxford Annotated Bible, the co-author of The Bible and the Believer, the author of Biblical Hebrew for Students of Modern Hebrew, and co-editor of the first edition of the Jewish Study Bible, published in 2004, which was awarded a National Jewish Book Award. His book, How to Read the Bible, was published by the Jewish Publication Society in the fall of 2005, and in paperback is How to Read the Jewish Bible by Oxford University Press in 2007. In addition to his published work, Brettler was awarded the Michael L. Walzer Award for Excellence in Teaching. In today's program, we discuss the second edition of the Jewish Study Bible, published by Oxford University Press. At 2,300 pages and with 54 academic contributors and 42 contextual and interpretive essays, the new edition represents a monumental scholarly achievement. In our conversation, we talk about the complexity of that undertaking and the foundations upon which it was built. Mark Brettler, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to speak to you. Well, I wonder if you might begin by telling listeners about your background. How did you become a Bible scholar? I am an accidental Bible scholar. It is true that I've known the Bible for many years. I went to traditional Jewish schools started studying Hebrew in elementary school and reading the Bible in its original Hebrew early in elementary school. But by the time I had finished high school, I thought I had really had enough, and I started college as an economics major. My first semester at college at Brandeis University, I needed a last course to fill in my schedule, and some of my friends told me that Professor Nahum Sarna whose book, Understanding Genesis, I had read years earlier, was teaching a course in Psalms. So I enrolled, and for only one semester was I an economics major. (laughs) He and that course had a tremendous influence on me, 
And then I got hooked on the Bible and on the serious academic study of the Bible. What was it like to study under him? He was a wonderful teacher. He really cared deeply about teaching. He listened to students very well. Uh, One of my most amazing memories of him is that he used to come into class with index cards. And some of those index cards would say, on such and such a date, a particular individual in class made such a suggestion about what that verse means or about what a particular word or psalm meant. And he thereby showed the whole class that you don't only learn from books, but that you learn from each other and that he really valued our opinions. And I really try to continue that sort of legacy when I'm a teacher. And his scholarship was distinguished by an emphasis on the literary aspects of the Bible. Is that right? It depends on which work. So understanding Genesis, a lot of it is literary. And he really did a lot of literary study of sorts before Robert Alter started his very important uh, articles and then books on the literary study of the Bible. But in Genesis, a lot of what he tried to do was to place the book within its ancient Near Eastern context. So there's a lot of study of the relationship between Genesis and other ancient Near Eastern narratives and what I would call the contextual study of the Bible. Psalms, a lot of his work is literary, probably more literary than many traditional uh, scholars of Psalms. A lot of Psalm scholarship has really been involved in trying to understand exactly how the Psalm fits into ancient Israelite worship. He believed, I think correctly, that so much of that is contextual. Too much time should not be spent on that. So he really cared a lot about the Psalm as a prayer and how the different words and verses and structures helped to shape it as a prayer. And when I work in Psalms, I continue to follow in that route. Mm, mm. Fascinating. So where did you go from there? This was at Brandeis. This was at Brandeis. Mm -hmm. I was an undergraduate and did my master's degree at Brandeis. Then I spent two years in Jerusalem at the Hebrew University, where I studied Bible and and a variety of Semitic languages. And then I returned to Brandeis to complete my PhD under Nahum Sarner's direction. Oh, okay. So you returned. I returned. Yes. Wow. And then I really returned yeah. because then I taught at Brandeis for 29 years. Oh, my goodness. And now you're at Duke. And now, a few weeks ago, I started teaching at Duke. Yes. Excellent. Excellent. Well, they're very well known for their religious uh, studies program. Yes. Uh, So, um, are there other things that influenced your decision to become a Bible scholar? And what, and why specific, you've really gotten into a number of, um, uh, a number of your accomplishments are editions of the Bible, uh, commentaries in the Bible. What led you in that direction as opposed to, um, and and actually even popular engagement with the Bible, what led you in that direction over, you know, something that's more um, specific um, or uh, uh, focused on, you know, uh, a particular period. 
Yeah, I've done a lot of that specific academic work, mm-hmm. which a handful or a couple of handfuls of scholars read, and I continue to do that work. But various things have led me to doing more popular works on the Bible. And I must admit, I have some colleagues who think that the word popularizing is a dirty word. For me, it's really an incredibly important word because the Bible is very important in American culture, mm-hmm. both religious and secular culture. And I would very much like to participate in the debate and the discussion on what the Bible means. Uh, some of my popular work was written because I was looking for thing, for works for students to read, and I just could not find something that was satisfactory. So, for example, the book that I wrote, How to Read the Bible, Second Edition, How to Read the Jewish Bible, started really as lecture notes for my classes. And I wanted those to be available to a broader group of people who do not have access to university classes and wanted to understand what the modern study of the Bible is all about. In terms of the editions that you asked about, again, Life and scholarship is really many, many accidents. That first started with my being an associate or one of the associate editors of the new Oxford Annotated Bible, which is the major college textbook Bible, which it existed in several editions and like much of biblical scholarship was very Protestant in its nature. The Bible editor at Oxford University Press, Don Krauss, who's a wonderful man and a very, very open man, wanted to make the new Oxford annotated Bible into a broader text representing a greater variety of perspectives and was actually quite disturbed or at least perturbed by some of what he inherited in the earlier editions of the New Oxford Annotated Bible, which, for example, had contrasts quite often between the Old Testament, I'll use that term because that was the term that was used then as a book of law, and the New Testament as a book of grace. Hmm. So my that was in the first edition of the Oxford that, Study that Bible? That was in earlier editions of the New Oxford oh, okay. Annotated Bible. Okay. And part of my job as one of the associate editors was to make sure that that contrast would be eradicated and that the Hebrew Bible would be presented in its own terms positively and not in a supersessionist fashion So I did that. I I really enjoyed doing that. Mm -hmm. And then a few years later, Don Krauss came to me and said, "Ah, we're thinking of another Bible project. We're thinking of doing something called the Jewish Study Bible. This was after Oxford had published the Catholic Study Bible. I think that Oxford realized that many of their Bibles were really, and certainly the older edition of the New Oxford Annotated Bible was a Protestant study Bible. And for the first time, because no one else had done this, uh, Oxford thought that it would be a good idea to put together a Jewish study Bible, which meant a number of different things. All of its contributors would be Jewish. And in a variety of ways, 
its perspectives would be Jewish. So he approached me. He knew me from the New Oxford Annotated Bible. He approached Adele Berlin, who is then teaching at University of Maryland. She's now a professor emerita. And together we developed and co-edited that volume. So that project came from Oxford. Oh, okay, I see. So did how um, in that case, um, were you the one I, you with Adele Berlin, did you two identify the scholars to include in that first edition? Yes. So we really had several jobs. Our initial one, you know, the books of the Bible obviously are set. So we do not need to decide which books to include. Mm -hmm. But we needed to find scholars for each of the books, which actually was not always that easy. Because, for example, in Jewish biblical scholarship, as opposed to Protestant biblical scholarship, the study of prophetic books or certain prophetic books certainly was and to some extent is underrepresented. While, for example, the study of the first five books, the Torah or the Pentateuch, is represented much better. So in some cases, we really had to struggle to find the appropriate people who would be able to write annotations to particular books. And in addition, a lot of what we did And this took a lot of thought and a lot of planning and changed very significantly between the first and the second edition. We wanted to have a significant number of essays in the back that would offer different types of background to the Bible and to the Jewish study of the Bible. So first we had to configure what those essays would look like and how they would be structured and is a type of literary conceit because there are 24 books of the Hebrew Bible, according to the Jewish enumeration. In the first edition of the Jewish Study Bible, we had 24 essays. And then we needed to go out and to find the right people to be able to write these essays. So that's how we began to put that book together. And in this particular case, each of us edited everything. I might have had more familiarity with certain of the books, example, Book of Judges, which I wrote on a lot. Mm -hmm. So I would edit that first, and then that would go to her second. She is, for example, was working on a commentary on the Book of Lamentations. So that would go to her first, and it comes to me second. So our hands, each of our hands, all four of our hands are in each and every word of both volumes of the Jewish study Bible. Okay. Both editions of the Jewish study Bible. Right. That's great. Um, Well, before we talk more about that work, um, I'd like to ask um, about some framing and contextual concerns. Um, And in general, I'm interested to know uh, from your perspective, what is the role of a study Bible? Um, And maybe even blending that with uh, what Oxford thought it was, its audience was, you know, I mean, I know there are probably separate answers, but um, who's the audience and, and, and uh, how does it function? Let me start with the issue of audience. Mm -hmm. I think Adele and I and Oxford as well. I think that we all thought that the audience would be predominantly Jewish. It still is largely Jewish 
But much to our surprise, many non-Jews have picked up the Jewish Study Bible. They want to simply see a different perspective on the Bible. And in addition, the Jewish Study Bible, simply because it has longer notes on the Hebrew Bible Old Testament than most study Bibles, is often the go-to or the main textbook for biblical courses at universities and even at seminaries, even at Protestant seminaries. So I'll say that we got to appreciate that the audience really is a broad one, Mm -hmm. uh, but does include to a significant extent a Jewish audience. Just remind me the rest of that question, please. I was just wondering, just in general, what is the role of the commentary or the the role of a study Bible as opposed to, I I think we're so familiar with just the Bible uh, or the Torah, uh, you know, being published by itself. Um, and without any helps or aids. And, uh, and I think some people are believe that this is sufficient for uh, understanding the text, but how does the study Bible, why is the study Bible necessary? A Bible by itself, especially in English, is never sufficient. So I emphasize, especially in English, because no translation is perfect. And one of the roles of any study Bible is to make the readers aware of different possible translations of a verse, different possible translations of a word, which can really have a larger impact on what the larger unit means. So one thing that a study Bible does is perhaps exactly the opposite of what your question says. Mm. It problematizes the translation, and gives different different options for the translation. Secondly, even if you understand the Hebrew perfectly, or then if you translate the Hebrew perfectly, there will be many different areas of background that the reader might not know. So a reader might not know how stories at the beginning of Genesis are connected to ancient Near Eastern texts and may have even used or reused those texts. Meaning, to give you another example of a role of the study Bible, meaning is not merely created by words, but is also created by the way that words are structured. And one of the things that biblical scholars attune themselves to is the structure of different biblical units and how that structure helps to communicate reading. So actually a very good example of that is from Genesis chapter one, where the annotations by John Levinson point out the way that days one, two, and three of creation in Genesis chapter one are paralleled by days four, five, and six in a particular way creating a symmetry, thereby making an argument that the world in that particular chapter is very well structured. So that is something that a reader might not immediately notice. Mm -hmm. So background, structure, translation, noting textual difficulties, noting how different biblical books are related. 
So, for example, a main interest of mine in biblical scholarship is the way in which the Bible is a compilation. And therefore, as a compilation, different parts of the Bible will often disagree with each other. Mm -hmm. And therefore, I say to my students, if I want you to learn one thing from my course, is that after the semester is over, you won't leave, and you will say, the Bible says, followed by one very simple notion, because in almost any idea, the Bible has a multiplicity of voices. So another thing that the annotations can do is it can show you where a passage in the Bible that is being annotated agrees with other passages and disagrees with other passages. So therefore, the readers can begin to get to sense the texture of the Bible uh, and the complexity of the biblical text. Mm -hmm. And unless you have a photographic memory, if you read the Bible just by itself, you're unlikely to be able to recall all the different places in which a particular theme or idea uh, is found in the biblical text. Okay. Um, so what burden does uh, a study Bible bear to provide a consensus view rather than the particular view, you know, however well-grounded, of an individual scholar? Is that a concern when you were pulling together uh, the co- both the commentary and the supplemental essays? It's a very big concern. Uh, let me address that in two ways. Adele Berlin and I could have written or edited the Jewish Study Bible according to Mark Brettler and Adele Berlin. But we realize that there are a wide variety of valid opinions. There are invalid opinions as well, but valid opinions about what the Bible means, what words mean, about what larger units mean. And in that way, I think that we really are very Jewish. Uh, An important rabbinic expression is, I'll give you the Hebrew, then I'll translate, shiv'im panim la Torah. Literally, there are 70 faces or facets to the Torah or it's to the Bible. In other words, there are 70, which is just a typological Mm -hmm. number for a large number of legitimate, equally legitimate meanings for what a biblical text means. That is a very Jewish view. If you open a traditional rabbinic Bible, it will have the biblical text, and then it will be surrounded by any number of commentators who disagree with each other, often vociferously. So we wanted to, yeah. So we wanted to follow that example. Uh We realize that there are, there might very well be a contradiction between the annotations of Isaiah and the annotations of Ezekiel. Mm -hmm. So we allowed those sorts of contradictions. We obviously chose scholars whose scholarship we respected. Uh, We made scholars aware of the fact that this really is not a scholarly monograph. This is really not a place to try out crazy ideas. Mm -hmm. This is a place where students and others might go to to understand 
that there often isn't a consensus, but something within the circle of the consensus. So we did somewhat limit ideas so that this is really pretty much reflects mainstream biblical interpretation. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so one thing I uh, was struck by too, is that you are building on a long tradition of, of uh, biblical commentary uh, going back to the great medieval commentators, such as Rashi and Ramban, uh, where their commentaries almost become, uh, embedded with the text, fused with indeed fused with the canon, and there are uh, many references to them throughout your edition. Um, and there's this, you know, really uh, a polyphony of of, of voices um, taking place. Um, how how do you balance all of those voices? Um, how do you find a way to um, uh, to uh, emphasize those? Um, uh, older commentators with newer insights. I very much like your word polyphony because that is really what we are trying to do in this Bible. And that is really what happens when you have a variety of different annotators, authors writing for you. And when we, when you encourage those authors to quote earlier sources, we, encourage them to quote earlier sources in two main cases. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the major contributions of biblical scholarship, of Jewish biblical scholarship of the 20th century, was to show that traditional biblical scholarship is relevant for modern critical biblical scholarship. The medieval Jewish commentators knew Hebrew superbly. They saw many of the same structures that modern scholars of the Bible discovered in quotation marks. They were aware, the medievals were aware, and the classical rabbis were aware of many of the contradictions that critical biblical scholarship solved in a very different way than these earlier Jewish sources. So especially when the early Jewish sources, whether it's the rabbis or the medievals, say something which is widely accepted in modern biblical scholarship, which the moderns think they have discovered, one of the things that we try to do in this volume is really to correct modern biblical scholarship and to make it realize that some of the, quote, original insights that it thinks it has discovered Mm-hmm. were really discovered a thousand, a thousand years ago, and in some cases earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, another use of traditional biblical scholarship in the Jewish study Bible, and by the way, this would very much differentiate the Jewish study Bible from the new Oxford annotated Bible, which has a different name and a different audience. Since we're assuming that much of the audience is Jewish, and they are curious about Jewish customs. Mm -hmm. Uh, We talk about the anchoring of Jewish law in the Bible. So, for example, three times the Torah states, you shall not seethe a kid in its mother's milk. 
that is very important in terms of Jewish uh, Jewish food laws, the laws of being kosher, and is the origin for keeping meat food and dairy food separate. Mm. So in the Jewish Study Bible, we will talk about that. In the Jewish Study Bible, for example, we are aware of very conscious of verses in the Bible which entered the Jewish liturgy. We'll talk about that. We're aware of certain prayers, such as the Shema prayer. Here, O Israel, the Lord is your God, the Lord is one, or the Lord alone, from Deuteronomy 6.4. And so we'll talk about it. We'll talk about its meaning in Judaism, including the meaning given to it by some of the traditional Jewish commentators whom you mentioned in your question. Mm -hmm. So the New Oxford Annotated Bible doesn't go into any of that? The New Oxford Annotated Bible goes into that much less Mm -hmm. than the Jewish Study Bible does. Mm -hmm. Uh, It might mention it here and there, but it has a broader audience. And therefore, I think that the distinct emphases of the two volumes, as reflected in their distinct titles, is totally appropriate. Okay. Hmm. So the, the first edition of the Jewish Study Bible was published in 2004. And this is the complete, as you've mentioned, this is a complete edition of the Jewish canon, which is called the Tanakh. Is that right? Yes, the Tanakh. Tanakh. Which is, it's an acronym or an abbreviation for Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim, the Torah, the Nevi'im, the prophetic sections, and the Ketuvim, the writings. Because, and I'm glad you actually, I'm stopping you here, many people think that the Old Testament and the Hebrew Bible are the same. Well, they have the same books, if you're Jewish and Protestant, If you're Catholic, the canon is actually a little larger, Mm -hmm. but the order of the books and the grouping of the books is different. So Tanakh reflects the fact that in Judaism, the Bible is divided into three sections, while in Christianity, the Old Testament is divided into four sections. So keep going, please. You're asking about the Tanakh. Yes. Yes. So um, I wanted to simply... uh, Ask, well, what has changed in the past 11 years to, pr- to prompt the release of this new edition? It's, it's, it's been completely retypeset, um, uh, and handsomely, I might add. Um, but what else did you do uh, in the preparation of this new edition? Because so much was done to lay the foundation uh, in the first edition from 2004. But can you tell me a little bit about what uh, what went into the new edition, What uh, maybe what scholarship or findings actually uh, presented new opportunities to uh, illuminate the text? First of all, I would not minimize the new typesetting. The major complaint that we got about the first edition is that if you're over 30, it is very difficult to read. <laughs> or as some people said... Like the two volume edition of the Oxford English Dictionary, that we should have also sold our volume with a magnifying glass. Oh dear. So okay. we were very happy that the typography could be changed and could resolve uh, reading problems for a variety mm-hmm. of people. Uh, here are the main differences between the first and the second edition. 
certain of the biblical books were assigned new annotators. We simply totally changed the commentators and the commentaries. In some cases, based on our knowledge that particular people were working on a book, and therefore we wanted to have their newest scholarship. Uh, secondly, people might think that it is only the sciences that change every year, but fields in the humanities change every year. There were journals in the humanities and biblical studies, you know, just like nature or science, which give a sense of new discoveries, new insights, new meanings. And therefore, all of the authors whom we retained from the first edition had an opportunity to go over their work from 10 years earlier and to see what of the newest scholarship they wanted to insert. But the biggest change, and a change that I am very, very happy about and proud of in the second edition of the Jewish Study Bible, is that we very significantly expanded the essays at the end. And just to preempt a question, because many people ask me about this, they say, how should we read the Jewish Study Bible? Should we read it from the beginning to the end, starting with the biblical texts? Or should we read the essays first? And I simply tell people, well, it totally depends on your personality. Some people like synthetic material first, then reading the particulars. Others like to do it the other way around. But we realized that there were certain very important topics that we did not cover in the first edition in the essays, and we expanded the essays very, very extensively in the second edition. So just to give you a couple of very many examples. Okay. The first edition had an essay on the Bible in Israeli life by Uriel Simon, a distinguished professor emeritus from Barilan University in Israel. Then we simply said to ourselves, well, hold it. We're publishing this in English. The Bible has played such an incredibly important part in American Jewish life. So we added an essay on the Jewish Bible in America by my former colleague at Brandeis University, Jonathan Sarna, who is really the dean of American Jewish history. Or another few examples, if I might. Oh, please. We read. We recognized in the first edition that the hardest genre to read in the Bible, in English especially, is poetry. So we had an essay there by my co-editor Adele Berlin on reading biblical poetry. But then we also realized, hey, biblical narrative doesn't look like modern American novels or short stories. So we added an essay on reading biblical narrative. Similarly, we added an essay on reading biblical law. And another example, the, in the first edition of the Jewish Study Bible, we had a generic essay, which was largely taken from the new Oxford annotated Bible, on what is called textual criticism, which is how to sort out 
the different ancient manuscript evidence for the Hebrew Bible and evaluate it. This time, we totally redid that essay. Emmanuel Tolf of Hebrew University, who is really the dean of textual criticism, wrote the essay for us, and he tailored it to this particular volume. In other words, the last few columns of that essay deal with textual criticism in the Jewish Publication Society translation, Mm. which we dealt with. Mm -hmm. And to give you one final example, because I worked as co-editing the Jewish Annotated New Testament after I did the Jewish Study Bible, I became very interested in the place of the Hebrew Bible in the New Testament. So I asked Amy Jill Levine to write an essay on that for the second edition of the Jewish Study Bible. And similarly, I asked Jacob Lassner, Professor Emeritus at Northwestern, to write a comparable article on the place of the Hebrew Bible in the Quran and the Muslim tradition. So we really added and expanded very significantly in the second edition in terms of the essays. And that is really where the major difference is. To the extent that the first edition you probably had to use with another introduction to the Bible. This second edition is much more self-standing mm-hmm. between the text, the annotations, and the very extensive essays at the end. It's really quite monumental. Um, <laughs> I don't, as a, Thank as, you. As a bookmaker myself, I don't know how you did it. Um, but um, well, Lots of wonderful help from my co-editors, my contributors at Oxford University Press. Of course. Excellent. Well, can you tell me a little bit about your uh, co-editor, Adele Berlin? Uh, Can you tell us about her and her work? Sure. Adele Berlin, as mentioned earlier, recently retired from University of Maryland. Her initial training was in Sumerology, the study of Sumerian texts. And she was one of the first people to bring literary studies from the world of English and general literature into the world of Sumerian texts. She also has always worked on the Bible. A major interest of hers is in literary study and and the Bible. And in that sense, we work quite well together because our interests complement each other. I have a bit more of a historical bent Well, she has a bit more of a literary bent, but we each appreciate what the other person does and brings to the table. So she has written uh, several books on literary study of the Bible. She has written uh, on the way in which medieval scholars have understood biblical poetry. Mm -hmm. And also she has written several commentaries on the Bible which is really very, very helpful because she fully understands the issues involved in writing commentaries and the annotations on the bottom and the side of the Jewish annotated New Testament are really mini commentaries of sorts. So she has written on lamentations. She's written on Esther, 
She's written on some of the prophets. So uh, that is her background. And I'm a little more interested in Torah material. Mm -hmm. So that way, in terms of what we have worked on, we also complemented each other very well. Did you mainly work over email or did you just get on the phone or or a combination of both, I'm sure? Uh, We sometimes had to get on the phone. (laughs) Usually, Usually it was email. One of us would edit, then the other would edit. Uh And we'd each have queries to each other. And we'd send them back and forth. And I could think of fewer than five cases where we had to get on the phone because we disagreed with something. We disagreed Mm -hmm. one with another so significantly that we really just had to talk it out. Hmm. Well, it's a... Modern technology allows this to happen now, not to be sitting in the same room, pouring over the same text together. Yes, it's a wonderful thing, modern technology, especially as applied to ancient texts. Yes, well, we've already touched on it already, but um, one of the things that impressed me so much about this uh, new Bible is the flexibility of the design. Um, You know, uh, it it uh, obviously the typography itself uh, is more readable. the type being uh, bigger. And I think um, uh, they chose a different typeface uh, for uh, legibility, but the design allows you to get uh, what I'm calculating to be about 58 lines of commentary for every 46 lines of the biblical text without breaking a column. But then if you do break the column, it has this nice way of flowing around the bottom of the text. Um, And how did you do that? Were, did you write with very specific specifications for word count um, that, you know, I, I know what, uh, how painful it is to cut text. So I'm just wondering how you guided your, you know, your colleagues. Uh, did you have a template, um, you know, uh, or were they just very precise in the, in the word counts? Well, we had a basic starting position. Mm-hmm. Namely, that a single volume could have about 2,300 pages, which is what this volume has. Uh, We then figured out what proportion should be essays, Mm -hmm. what proportion should be biblical texts. We then figured out, because again, this is a Jewish study Bible, and the... Word counts and the proportionality of word counts is different in different study Bibles. We figured out which books are especially important within Jewish tradition. So not surprisingly, the Torah word counts per book are larger than the word counts of some of the prophetic books. And we just try to figure out how we can more or less use all 2,300 pages. Uh, Adele and I would often use the equivalent of cases of white out to make the word counts more or less fit so that the book would really fit between two covers. Mm-hmm. And the... Uh, Wizards of Typography and Layout at Oxford University Press. Uh, they did their job. But part of what they were also aware of, and we discussed this very self-consciously, and it's very nice that you picked up some of the differences, 
between the first and the second edition is the layout of the page very much looks like the layout of what a page of Talmud, the great rabbinic work, looks like. Mm-hmm. And you know, that is not an accident. Uh, Oxford was very aware of what a Talmud layout looks like. And we showed that to them. And much like a page of Talmud, sometimes there's a little text and a lot of commentary. Other times there is a lot of text and a little commentary. And that is the model that Oxford worked with for this particular volume, which is fully appropriate for a Jewish study Bible. Mm-hmm. Was there a chief designer? I, I looked in vain for the name of someone to compliment, but <laughs> or was it a team of designers? <laughs> I'm honestly not sure. Oh, okay. We were presented with various choices. This is what we went with because uh-huh. we, like you, were impressed with the wizardry and the readability. And the Oxford people are very modest. Yes. They like hiding behind their products. Yes. Well, very few designers and editors get credit in their in their works. It's a, a, a labor of love behind the scenes. Um, well, I want to touch on the translation, too. Uh, uh, this edition, like the one before, is based on the second edition of the JPS translation of the Bible, which was published in 1985. Um, how does that translation compare to uh, ecumenical translations such as the RSV or the NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version, which I think is the basis for the Oxford Annotated the, Bible? Is that right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Because it yeah. the the uh, RSV had was a was also a team of both Jewish and Christian scholars. Um, but how does how would you uh, uh, describe the differences between those translations? Okay, so the RSV and especially the NRSV mm-hmm. really present themselves as ecumenical, and they're somewhat ecumenical. There are a token number of non-Protestant scholars. Uh, who were involved in the translation, but oh. it really is largely a Protestant translation. Oh, okay. uh, the JPS, the Jewish Publication Society, is entirely a Jewish translation. Uh, it differs from the NRSV in a couple of ways. First of all, it is much closer to the Hebrew text than the NRSV is, and this is. It's fully appropriate because in Jewish tradition, the traditional Hebrew text, what is called the Masoretic text, was really the only text used within Judaism. While fully appropriately for the New Revised Standard Version and the Early Revised Standard Version, the Jewish text, the Hebrew text doesn't have the same voice there. They will sometimes take a reading from the Septuagint, from the ancient Greek translation, which of course started out as a Jewish translation, but was enshrined within the church rather than within the synagogue. And that will be the basis of that translation. So one difference is the text that they use Mm -hmm. or something that the NRSV is very proud of, which is the Jewish Publication Society would never do. It is quite likely that in one of the chapters of Samuel, several verses were lost in the Hebrew that are preserved in the Dead Sea Scrolls. The NRSV restores those verses. 
the JPS translation would never do that. Mm. Uh, another significant difference is the NRSV was written, as was the RSV before it, with an awareness that it was to be a liturgical translation, that it would be read out loud in church, so that every time a pronoun that might be masculine in the Hebrew might in some way reflect both both masculine and feminine and be gender-inclusive, the NRSV pushed the translation toward gender inclusivity. Uh, The JPS translation is much more, though certainly not totally interested, in what the text originally meant. Mm -hmm. So issues such as gender inclusion, which are very important liturgically, did not affect the translation of the Jewish Publication Society. Because again, they're much more interested in what the text originally meant when it might very well might not have been gender inclusive, as opposed to what the text or how the text should be used in current liturgical practice. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, well, we're, uh, our time is winding down, unfortunately, but I wonder if you might uh, cite some examples of uh, the commentary where provides fresh new insight about a particular passage. Are there two or three passages that come to mind where uh, you thought uh, the contributor uh, really brought out something new that wasn't in the previous edition? Uh, Yes. So actually, if you don't mind, let me stick with one example. Because it's a a slightly complex example, but a very, very important one. Probably the most difficult book of the Bible is the book of Job, which is hard for a wide variety of issues. And the key to understanding the book of Job is often understood to be the speeches that you have in chapters 38 through the beginning of chapter 42, mm-hmm. where God speaks from the whirlwind twice, yes. mm-hmm. and Job responds to God twice. And you would imagine that the very last verse of Job's response to God in the second set of speeches may very well be the key to understanding the book of Job. Now, that reads in the Jewish Publication Society, therefore, I recant and relent, being but dust and ashes. And that is Job speaking there. Now, the new edition of the Jewish Study Bible has a commentary or annotations by Job by Ed Greenstein, who taught for many years at the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York and uh, now teaches at Barilan University outside of Tel Aviv in Israel. And he glosses that verse as following. The Hebrew can sustain neither this nor most other translations. The verb rendered recant 
requires a direct object which is lacking. Dust and ashes is a figurative expression referring to the abject human condition. But the preposition ow cannot mean being. This key verse should thus be rendered. Therefore, I am disgusted, and I take pity on wretched humanity. Now, that's remarkable. Mm. That is the last words. Mm. These are the last words that Job said. And then he goes on to say, this understanding of the Hebrew is reflected in a liturgical poem recited on the evening of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, take pity on pathetic humanity. So again, this particular annotation gives a sense of a lot of what we do in the Jewish annotated New Testament, whether the first or this newer second edition. Yes, we use a translation, but we are not enslaved to that translation. Mm. When we think the translation is wrong, we call the reader's attention to that, and we explain why we believe it is wrong. Mm -hmm. Finally, we show the continuity between what is said in the Bible and later Jewish tradition. In this particular case, how a particular liturgical poem for Yom Kippur really picks up and properly understands Job chapter 42, verse 6, which in this new translation might very well be a key for understanding the meaning of the book of Job as a whole. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, in preparation for this interview, I did read the, uh, the introductory materials for Job. And yes. I was really struck by um, its even-handedness, but also the way in which it presents both, um, both views uh, that uh, get tossed around from time, uh, that, that it's both a folktale with some uh, commonalities, some but not all commonalities to uh, other ancient Near Eastern texts, but then also this question of whether or not Job is historical. Um, I asked a few people ahead of the interview, what's, what's a question that you would have that you would want a commentary to answer? And they, that was something one person came up with, but it was, it was nice that the, the, the introduction was able to handle both of these uh, approaches to Job, but in a way that telegraphed no anxiety about the tension. And I felt that that was actually the way I read a number of other instances, even in Genesis or uh, the Torah, uh, the handling of, you know, the documentary hypothesis and the different sources. Um, it's just laid out for the reader uh, to, um, to uh, you know, take in uh, these different things that are known or unknown, and, uh, and then the reader is left to decide. I think you picked up something very important about this volume as a whole. And this brings me back to what I said earlier about the traditional Jewish view of Shivim Panim La Torah, that there are 70 different facets of interpretation to the Bible. Now note that that maxim does not continue by saying, and this, choosing one of them, is the right or the only way to do it. So to use your own language, uh, 
there is not, there often is not a lot of Jewish anxiety around these particular tensions. And there often is a Jewish view to, again, pick up on a term that you use, view of looking at the Bible as a polyphonic book mm-hmm. rather than as a unified book. And that is something that both Adele Berlin and I believe in very strongly. That determined the authors we chose to write the annotations and the essays, and also is reflected in the broader editing that we did in this particular book. Mm -hmm. Well, that's an excellent uh, note to end on. And I think we've identified uh, a motto for the uh, for our channel uh, for the new books and biblical studies. (laughs) So thank you for that. Um, As we approach the Bible from 70 uh, you know, uh, different voices. Um, so, um, uh, our traditional closing question on the new books network is what are you working on now? I'm working on two things simultaneously. Having finished co-editing this new edition of the Jewish study Bible, uh, Amy, Jill Levine and I are, working on a new edition of the Jewish Annotated New Testament, which we hope will be out in two years. I mean, that book was seen as so revolutionary and got so much hype. We really realized that we need to revise it quickly in the same way that there are many new essays in the Jewish Study Bible second edition, mm-hmm. there are will be many new essays in the Jewish annotated New Testament second edition. And again, you know, we just got wiser. I, I actually think that the best time for teaching a course is the second time. Mm-hmm. I think the best time for editing a book is the second time you edit it. There were just many things that we could not do the first time around that we hope will succeed in doing uh, the second time around. And we hope that will be out in 2017. And uh, the Jewish Publication Society, having completed a series of commentaries on the Torah, on the Haftarot, on the prophetic readings, and almost on the five scrolls, is now looking to broaden. And uh, a number of us, I'm one of five or six people working on a commentary on the book of Psalms. So now my original work is writing a commentary on Psalms 91 to 118. And it is a tremendous challenge. Well, you have to take up the labor of your your great and wise teacher. Yes. Yes. And it's really a pleasure and an honor to do that. Excellent. Well, I look forward to uh, reading those in the future and perhaps having you on a future program. Thank you. That would really be my pleasure. Thank you very much. All right. Take care. You too. That concludes my conversation with Mark Brettler about the Jewish Study Bible published by Oxford University Press. I hope you enjoyed today's program. Please join me again to hear about other new books in biblical studies. To learn about new programs, you can follow me on Twitter at New Books Bible. As always, thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.